Church, what a blessing to just be able to worship with you this morning and to even lift up the name of Jesus Christ and to talk about His goodness. If you've been with us over the course of the last few weeks, we've started venturing into the book of Romans. And after three chapters, uh, are we not happy that we have the goodness of God? Uh, that He uh, imparts upon us when we do not deserve it, right? We, we thank you, Jesus, that you have given us grace and mercy uh, because based upon the things we've learned in the first three chapters is without those things, we stand no chance, right? Amen? Right? We've, we've seen over the course of the last three chapters the wretchedness of humanity, that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one, not one, who is considered righteous in the economy of God. And so this morning, uh, there's good news. We're going to turn the corner on that just a little bit. Like, are, are we excited? Uh, maybe you felt like you're, you've been beat up over the course of the last three weeks. You're like, man, holy moly, like how bad are we? Uh, but this morning we get to talk about and we get to look at two forefathers in the faith and how their faith was considered or credited as righteousness. It was nothing that they were able to earn on their own merit. It was something that God freely gave them. And so if you're thinking through last week's uh, sermon that Pastor Aaron led, here's a couple of, of high notes uh, that we hit on. is Number one, that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. Not even one person would be considered righteous. The purpose of the law was to reveal God's perfect standards of righteousness and to show men that they are unable in their own power to live up to those standards. No matter how hard we try to reach the standard of, of righteousness in the economy of God, no man is able physically to be able to achieve that status. To reject the law in any part is to disobey it in full. So Pastor Aaron talked about, you know, if... if uh, it only takes one lie to be a what? Liar, right? It only takes one sin to be a sinner, right? He, he talked about those things. And so uh, we have to realize that to reject the law in any part is to disobey it in full. And so even with the way that we think, not just the ways that we engage and physically interact with others, it's the way that we also think. And so all of us, if we were to go through and take an inventory of the things that we've probably even engaged in in this past week, we would say, Wow. Yes, I am indeed a sinner. And so then the next thing was our confidence, both inward and outward, is solely in Jesus Christ. Our confidence on the outward, the things that are physically appearing that people can look at and say, okay, that guy's got it together. Even on the outside, we don't have it together without Christ. But on the inside, our hearts are wretched without Jesus Christ holding us together. And Aaron said this, he said, The gospel says that my identity and self-worth are centered in Jesus. My identity and my self-worth are centered in Jesus. For us to fully know the purpose, to, for us to fully know our identity, is for us to first know Christ and the purpose that he has us for in this life. And so this morning we're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25. Now, before we even get in there, you're, there's going to be a couple of words uh, that are going to be big churchy words. Uh, the first one that I really want to kind of unpack this morning is justification. Justification. The way that I learned it, being a student pastor, is I tend to think on, on simple terms, and I also try to dial back based on my mental capacity to express it in such a way that others might easily understand it. Justification, one of my leaders said one time, was simply this. 
God's work works in such a way that it's justified, never sinned. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. It's an easy way to remember justification, but if you really want the more technical term, here it is for you. And so justification, the definition, is a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ. God inputs Christ's perfect righteousness to the sinner's account, then declares his verdict that the forgiven one is fully just. Not simply disregarding their sin, but having imputed our sin to Christ, who paid the penalty in full, he now reckons Christ's righteousness over to us. And so for just a minute, if I could try to paint a mental picture for you, I want you to imagine that there's two people standing on the stage. There's one to my right and one to my left. The one on the right is wearing a completely white shirt. We're talking uh, uh, beautifully clean. There's not a speck. There's no dirt whatsoever. It's as white as white could get. And then on my left side is a person wearing a black t-shirt. It's absolutely crummy, dirty, couldn't get any dirtier. We stand, we come to court, and we stand before the judge. And in order for us to be found right, there has to be a penalty, a payment for our sin. Scripture says that the the payment for sin is death, if we were to go way back into the beginning. And so we stand before the judge, and the person on the right says, Judge, I want to represent the person on the left. I want to, uh, to, for me to pay the penalty that they have incurred through the course of their life, which is represented by their dark, dirty, stained shirt. The person on the right side, they take off the white shirt and they begin to put it upon the, the person on the left to cover over their shirt. But before that, he says, hold on. I need them to give me their dark shirt. So they take off the dirty shirt and they put it upon the person who was on my right. And now the person on my left has put on the clean shirt. If the clean shirt is to represent righteousness and the dark shirt is to represent sin, the person who was first righteous has now been made dirty, whereas the person who was dirty has now been made right. Are you tracking with where I'm going? You see, Jesus Christ not only paid the penalty for our sin, he took our sins upon himself and was willing to pay that price. Not only did he cover or pay for our sin, He was willing to put them on himself and take them to the cross to where they were covered once and for all. So while we might have been the person on the left who was dirty and stained, Jesus Christ was willing to take his righteousness and place it upon us so that when the judge, when God looks to us, no longer does he see the dirtiness anymore. He now sees the righteousness that was only provided by the work of Jesus Christ. That's justification. It's just if I had never sinned. And this morning, we are going to turn that corner where we're going to see how is it that we can be justified. We've learned that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, that there's no one righteous, not even one. How can we actually be justified in the economy of God? And so Paul, like a surgeon or like a lawyer, continues to build upon the case. And so actually, he brings some examples into the courtroom today. He brings some examples for you and I to look at and say, okay, it's nothing that I can do. It's nothing that we can do. It's only in what Jesus Christ can do. And so if you have your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 4, and we're going through the whole chapter. 
So we're going through warp speed through this, but we're going to be going through Romans 4, verses 1 through 25, and it starts like this. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to him as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and, and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. And so Paul is beginning, or he's continuing to uh, talk about the law. Now, the law was a good thing in that it identifies sin and it gives us a standard for which we can strive towards. But Paul also definitely declared there is no human person, there's no man, no woman who is able to fully keep the law in righteousness. And so uh, he starts in here and he starts to talk about how uh, we look to, uh, we tend to look towards people. As examples, okay, well, who are the examples that we can look to since we, since we were unable to keep the law? Who are the examples that we can look to to say that we can be right with God? Obviously, we as believers in this generation, we have Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus. We know he paid that debt. But what about those who had come before them? You see, Abraham came a good many years before Paul. And so, uh, in fact, it was, it was some thousand years, two thousand years that, that Abraham was speaking these words. And Paul was simply identifying, you know what, Abraham's faith did not come by a mere sign. It came by a seal. You see, the sign of circumc circumcision 
was to show that these were a people who were devoted to God. They were, they were, they were outwardly showing that they were God's people. They were God's chosen people. But he goes on to say that it was not only a sign but a seal. I don't know how many of you have anything that is collectible or maybe through the years you've had something that's of great worth. And, uh, uh, you know, we go to New York and we look at Rolex watches. You don't get a, a seal of authenticity on a Rolex watch that's bought in New York on the street for $15, do you? Right? Um, or, or, or there's collectible plates. And, and a lot of times when you buy the collectible plates, they'll give you a certificate of authenticity. It shows that this is a, a numbered product. This has a, a, a number and a, a certificate that identifies its authenticity. You see, it's saying, uh, in, in much the same way, it's saying that there was a seal as an outward sign. Yes, Abraham was circumcised, but Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. You see, there was a good many years before Abraham was even circumcised that God attributed to him his faith, faithfulness as righteousness. And so it was his faithfulness that sealed, it sealed the faith that he had in his heart. It was what was going on in his heart that made him righteous. It had nothing to do with what was going on on the outside. You see, even Abraham was a goofball. Right? We, we look through, and you, if you follow the story of Abraham, you see that he was willing to follow God, but even in his willingness, he often veered off trail. There's a number of stories which Abraham is involved. There was a drought, and God told Abraham to do one thing, and he ends up going over to Egypt, trying to find um, food uh, in the midst of the drought, even though he did not once ask God for provision. Right? There's a number of circumstances. Right, He, he, he called... Um, Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a baby even in your old age. And before they could even believe that, Sarah said, well, why don't you just uh, lay with Hagar and, and, and have a child? That way we can make sure that we have an heir. Right? He didn't wait upon God, but it was still attributed to him that he was faithful. And that faithfulness attributed to righteousness. And so we could spend a lot of time on a lot of things this morning. But what I don't want us to miss as we're going through Romans chapter 4 is the idea of faith. What is it about faith that allows us to be seen as righteous in the eyes of God? It seems mighty easy, doesn't it? So you're telling me all I got to do is show faith towards God and I can be one with Him. Absolutely. Because He's the one that established that in His economy. Yet many of us are wearing ourselves thin, trying to work and get better before we ever go to God. Many of us have made professions of faith, yet we tire ourselves out because we feel like we can't pray because He'll never want to allow me or hear me because I've done this. Or there's coming a day when I will surely lay my life down and I'll live for Him, but i got a few things, a few wild oats that I want to sow. We're not guaranteed our next breath. How simple is faith? And I know we're skeptical when we talk about simple things. You know how I know that? Many years ago when, when my wife and I were first getting married and we didn't have uh, two nickels to rub together, we were wanting to take a vacation. And we were walking through Bass Pro Shop. We lived in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And we were walking through Bass Pro Shop and, and there was a salesman there. And he said, hey, have you guys ever thought about owning your vacation? 
I was like, why, as a matter of fact, I always thought I had on my vacation, but no, let's talk about this. And so what he began to do is he began to offer us a free vacation if you will only go to Charleston, South Carolina, and sit down for just a few minutes, and we'll, we'll discuss our vacation packages, but the weekend is free for you. Buddy, I was excited because I thought I was going to get a free vacation, and we went to Charleston, and we got to do some of the free things, but man, we had to sit down with this salesman, and they didn't just go through their pitch once at the first no. They kept hitting it, and they kept hitting it, and by about an hour and a half of me sitting in there, I was about to run out the doors, right? Um, that free vacation came at a cost, didn't it? Right? It, it, it required my time. They were trying to make it require my checkbook, which the joke was on them. We didn't have money anyway, so it wasn't ever going to happen. But there's nothing for free. Like We've convinced ourselves of that. But the reality is that Jesus says, yes, there is. I have paid the debt for your sin. This is a free gift that I'm willingly giving to you. The only thing is you, it requires faith for you to receive it. It requires faith for you to live it out in your life. And so this morning, just real briefly, I want us to walk through and talk about Abraham's faith. Even David's faith. David references Psalm 32 in, in what he says here. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do, like when we're reading that, do we, do we sense how awesome that is? Do we sense that one day when we stand before the living God, that, that if we have put our faith in him, that he will not count these transgressions and these, these trespasses and these sins and these, hard con, these, these, these hurtful conversations or actions? Or aren't we glad that he won't count those against us? That we're considered blessed? Our lawless deeds, the things that we did as rebels to, to God, will not be held against us. Like David is one who had found joy in serving the Lord. We know David's story. We know that he was a sinner. We know that he was an adulterer, that he was a murderer. We know that he coveted other people's things. He was a mess up just like we are. But he has come to the place where he has found joy. And he's come to the place where in a psalm he can say, blessed are those, blessed am I, because I am one who has been able to have the sins taken off of me. My sins are covered, and God does not count them against me any longer. How do we achieve those things? If you have a piece of paper, if you just have a really good memory, there's an acrostic that I want you to rem remember by the word faith. By the word faith, and the first F is simple, it's faith. Faith, not a blind leap into the unknown, but on the facts of God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ. Based upon the things that we know of God, based upon the promises that we've seen lived out, not just in our lives, but in the lives of all the forefathers and people who have come before us, are we willing to step out, not into the unknown, but in the character of God? We know that God is faithful. We know that God is merciful, that God is gracious. We sense that in our lives. We see the many who have gone before us, and we can, we can confidently step out in faith. The A is agreement. It's one thing to know the truth of the gospel. It's quite another to agree with it. The believing heart affirms the truth from God's word. Does our hearts affirm the truths of God's word? 
And if our heart does not affirm the truths of God's word, I want you to ask this question. Is it because I don't know what God's word says? Do I know what God promises in his word or am I merely drinking on Sunday mornings or by what other people are putting into my life? Can I affirm the truths that I am hearing? Am I allowing God's word to speak into my life? Am I at a place where I can agree that God's word is truth? So we have faith, agreement, we have I, internalization. Internalization, the inner desire of a believer to accept and apply the truth of the gospel in his life. We obey Christ as Lord. So we're not only hearing the word of God, we're accepting the word of God. And from the overflow of what we have accepted, we are applying the word of God. We're internalizing it. And we're exercising it. So faith, agreement, internalization, trust. The T is trust. Trust is having unreserved confidence in God that he will keep his promise to never forsake us as his children and provide our needs. Having unreserved confidence in God that he will keep his promises to never forsake us as his children and provide our needs. Many of, the, many of us in the way that we live, by trying to draw closer to God through our works, or by trying to earn favor with God in the way that we live, it shows a lack of trust. It's saying that what God has done on the cross is not good enough for me to be able to have right relationship with him. Therefore, I'm going to exercise my own will and my own ability in order to get into right relationship with him. Jesus paid much too great a price on the cross for you and for me to deny the fact that he has done it all. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. When he said it is finished, the, pet, the debt had been paid. There is nothing that you and I could ever bring. We've heard the equation, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And it's absolutely true. There is nothing that we can bring that's going to draw us any closer. We just simply trust. So faith, agreement, internalization, trust, and hope. The H is hope. Every believer is saved in the hope of going to live eternally with God in heaven. Although he has never seen heaven or seen the Lord in whom he believes. You see, we have hope. We hope into things that are unseen. We hope into things that are to come. Based upon his promises, we know that we have a hope that is likely. That a hope that is, that is absolute. We have a hope that we will be drawn to him to live eternally in a place that we have never stepped foot in. In a place that he tells us he has gone and prepared for us. The promises of Christ, if we take him as our Savior, then we also must take him as our Lord. We also must trust him in such a way that we can put our hope on him. I know many of us tend to, to lose hope because of our circumstances or because of the, the world around us. We look around and we see a broken and dying generation, a world. But if we put our trust and our faith and we agree with him and we internalize these things and, and put them into practice, our hope in Christ will one day be fulfilled. And so there are seven characteristics of Abraham's faith specifically that I want us to consider this morning as we're, as we're thought, talking about what is faith. There are seven characteristics. The first one is this. As we, as we read in verse 18, it says, In hope he believed against hope. The NIV translates it this way. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed 
and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. You see, what seemed like a hopeless situation in Abraham's circumstances, he still had hope, and he believed that God was going to fulfill the promise that he had given. You see, even though the world around him would say, this is a hopeless scenario, Abraham, you're too old to be having a kid, you don't even have one kid, and you're talking about being the father of many nations. Could you imagine the ridicule of the people? Or, or, or think about Noah and the ark, where Noah's out in the middle of the desert that has probably never seen rain, and he's building a boat. And people are going through, and they're, and they're probably judging him. They're casting insults at him. They're, they're making jokes about him. Could you imagine Abraham being in the same situation at his age and his stature? And a person comes to his well and says, what is your name? He says, my name is Abraham, which means father of many. He said, so how many kids do you have if you're the father of many? Well, I don't have any. Could you imagine the chuckles? Could you imagine the, the jokes that were going on as visitors came by? He goes, dude, that guy's a little confused, isn't he? Like he? He's the father of many and doesn't even have one kid. But yet, Abraham didn't get bought into all that doubt. Abraham knew that the God who had promised, he walked in a place of faithfulness and he said, I believe that God has called me to this and he's going to see me through it. That what God has called me to, he is going to provide for me to be able to fulfill. And so that's exactly what he did. He believed against hope. Hope is this, it's the desire for something that might be true or may happen, even though things may have seemed hopeless. He stepped out in hope. He had faith. He had a firm confidence that what God said was true and that it would come to pass. Secondly, Abraham believed God without becoming weak in faith. He believed God without coming, becoming weak in faith. He did not allow doubt to cloud and partly undermine belief. You see, many times when we step out in doubt, doubt will quickly take hold of our perspective. Have you been in that circumstance before? I know I have found myself there many times. I feel the affirmation of where God is calling me, but doubt quickly comes in and starts to steal the attention. It, stop, it starts to steal the prayer life. It starts to steal the motivation towards me actually stepping out where God has called me to step. Doubt is an enemy to hope. Doubt is an enemy to faith. And the enemy, Satan, would love nothing more than for you to doubt the very one who has given you a promise. God wants us to stand upon his promise. And Abraham had believed in such a way that he did not become weak in faith, even though the things that he saw did not reflect the promise of what God had said. He allowed his faith to continue. Now, does it mean that he didn't question? Do you think Abraham had a few questions? He absolutely did, and we can see it in Scripture. Abraham had questions, but those questions were not doubting. Those questions were trying to find answers. Do you think questions are wrong? Do we question God? Is it wrong to question God? I say it's not wrong to question God. When we are asking for answers, when we are seeking His will, when we are seeking His face, we are seeking Him to be the Lord of our life, it is not wrong to ask a question, God, how do you intend to provide this? And then to wait for answers. It's wrong for us to doubt when He has promised. It's wrong for us to doubt when He has called us because it doesn't show our faith. Thirdly, Abraham's faith prevented him from becoming discouraged by his own natural weakness. You see, he was old. 
and his body was failing. He was not in the prime of his life. He was not in the years that were, were fruitful for, for bearing children. In fact, he, he wasn't even of age to where his journey would have, his journeying or, or traveling would have been ideal. But he did not allow ignorance and weakness to be obstacles to his trust. See, many times in life when we, when we become physically inept or, or we become uh, ignorant because we just simply don't know things, we often sideline ourselves. We take ourselves and put ourselves on the sidelines. We're not in the game any longer. Well, those are good things for those people to do, uh, but we are going to do this because I just don't know any better. Or I can't uh, see myself physically being able to do such things. Yet God has given all of us purpose and God has given us all an ability to be able to contribute to the mission of what he's doing. Not only in our community, in our homes, but around the world. God has called us as a people of faith to pray on behalf of those who are around us. God has called us as a people of faith to intercede on behalf of whatever mission God has in store. And so when we focus more on our ignorance and more on our weakness, then it discourages our own ability to go and be full, to fulfill the purpose for which God has got us. So rather than, than questioning or rather than taking ourselves out, why don't we come with a, a sense of preparedness, with an intentional uh, coming and, and sitting and receiving whatever it is that God has? When we close ourselves off and we, we put ourselves um, to the side, we don't come with expectancy that God's going to do anything. I can tell you this, and no matter what physical capacity that you find yourself in, God can do great and mighty things where you are. There was a man uh, I was watching the other day. He's from Australia. His name's Nick Kvorgiak or something like that. I can't pronounce his name. It's really weird spelling. But the fellow was born with no arms and no legs. He, he essentially was, was here, here up. And he is one of the, the top Christian uh, motivational speakers across the world right now. Because this man is married. He has children. He can swim. He can, he can uh, do all kinds of things that you and I, if, if we were in that same circumstance, we might sit ourselves out and say, I, I, I'm of no use. He tells a story of when he was younger that, that he... Uh, tried to actually uh, lay himself down into a, a tub uh, in just a few inches of water and was trying to fight the, the idea that he had no purpose, that there was nothing that he could do in this life, yet God got a hold of his heart. And now he goes around and he encourages not only people that have limitations, he encourages you and me. He encourages believers in Jesus Christ. He encourages people who have no hope because he found hope in the one God who could give him hope. He didn't sideline himself. He said, I have value. I'm going to live my life in such a way that I'm going to fulfill whatever purpose it is that God has. He didn't look at his weakness, and he didn't lay upon his ignorance. He was willing to position himself and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. God, use my life for your glory. And that's where we all are today, from youngest to oldest. We are in an excellent place to position ourselves to come with expectancy and say, God, meet me here. God, speak into my life and use me as you will. Fourthly, Abraham did not count God's promise when the circumstances around him seemed to make its fulfillment impossible. 
right? We, we hear in Scripture that, that Sarah, there was a deadness to her womb. She was many years in age. There were other women who were looking upon her and saying, hey, she's never had a child. It seemed that, that the circumstances were, were impossible, yet God stepped in and he made the impossible possible. God stepped in and he called them to be, called Abraham to be the father of many nations, and it began with Isaac. Because Isaac was the chosen one of grace and righteousness, not Ishmael. Ishmael was the product of, of Abraham trying to force something that was not God's will. But Isaac, Isaac was the one of favor. Because as Abraham continued to, to follow after God, God blessed them with his grace and his mercy with Isaac. Fifth, with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief. He didn't waver. It wasn't uh, whichever way the wind blew. He was willing to, be, to have fortitude and to follow hard after God. When things seem impossible in our lives, it's even easier to distrust him. When we have situations in our lives when, when sickness comes or when death comes or when broken relationships come or, or job loss comes, it's easy for us to, to waver into unbelief. It's easy for us to forget the promises of God, forget the, the many years that He has walked with us and He has blessed us and He has provided for us and He has protected us. It's easy for us to forget those things in the moment when the circumstances do not seem right. Sarah originally actually laughed when hearing the promise that God gave Abraham. She herself could not fathom the thought of her at her age giving birth to a child. But struggling faith is not doubt, just like temptation is not sin. We, fall, we all fall into temptation. It's how we respond to it that becomes sin or whether it becomes obedience. Just like struggling faith is not doubt. Struggling faith is us trying to, to, to grow in our relationship with, with Christ, to lay ourselves before him and ask that he would shape us and mold us in the midst of what we're going through. Sixthly, Abraham's faith was characterized by his giving glory to God. Godly faith glorifies God through worship and through praise and through honor. Godly faith does not glorify man. Godly faith does not glorify you and me. Paul was, was writing in the first part of Romans to very legalistic, pharisaical people who were doing things of religion that were bringing attention to themselves. They were putting themselves at the, the best seats and they were drawing attention because of their, their sweet prayers and their, and their so-called faithfulness. But it was not glorifying God, it was glorifying only themselves. With the ornamentation of the things that they wore to the words that they were using, they were only seeking after attention for them. Abraham gave glory to God. You see, the one who gives faith receives all the credit. The God who gives faith is the one who rightly gets all the credit. Our faith, the faith that you and, you and I have, the ability for us to be faithful, comes from God. He gives us that ability. He removes the hardness of our hearts so that he can infiltrate into our lives and he can change us for his glory. And so because he is the one that gives us faith, he is the one that rightly receives all the credit, all the due, all the glory, all the praise and honor. It all belongs to God. And we see that represented in Abraham's life. And lastly, seventh, it says God's promise was certain and his power was sufficient. God's promise was certain. It was not shaken. And God's power was sufficient. 
Abraham was fully assured that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He didn't let the circumstances dictate his decision. He was assured that what God had promised, that God would provide, that what needed to be done in order for Abraham to fulfill what God had promised him, that God was going to be the one who would provide it. We see it very beautifully when Abraham takes his son Isaac upon a mountain. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Abraham, in faith, he takes his son up on the mountain, not, not disclosing to Isaac what in the world that he's going to do, and he lays him upon an altar, and he lifts a knife. And as he begins to, to drop down the knife to sacrifice his son, God provides a lamb out of the brush. See, God requires faithfulness. But God also provides that faithfulness. God provides us, if we are willing to sacrifice, God provides us everything that we need for life and for godliness. Abraham's faith was such that he knew that if I do sacrifice my son, then surely God has the power to bring him back. Yet, I will lay my son, my firstborn, this beautiful son that it made no sense for me to have. I will lay him down on this altar, and I know that God will be glorified in it. God's power was sufficient, and Abraham knew it. And so in closing, as the, as the band's preparing to, to, to come back, I, I just want to draw attention to verses 6 through 8. And it's concerning David, and, and so David's talking about the blessing, and we just talked about that just a minute ago, about the perspective that, that we get as we, as we read these words. But from Psalm 32, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here's the question. Knowing that David was a great sinner, just like we are great sinners, knowing that Abraham was a sinner, what do we do with guilt? We can read through the Psalms. We see that, that David was, was guilty of, of adultery and, and murder. We see that David was very repentant. We knew he was a man after God's own heart, but he was repentant. He was, he was asking that God would, would, would renew unto him the joy of his salvation, that we, he would create in him a, a clean heart, a, a steadfast heart, one that would pursue God with, with all that he had. David was a man who had every reason to be guilty. Yet Paul here so clearly shows in Psalm 32 that David was a man who recognized that the, the one whose lawless deeds have been forgiven is a blessed man indeed. The one who receives the righteousness of God, the free gift that God imputed or he, he gave, he credited to them. Blessed is that man. So what did David do with his guilt? How did he get rid of his guilt? How did Abraham deal with his guilt? Here's a few ways I think that you and I, we could get rid of the guilt that we have just by looking at the stories of these two. Number one, we, we quit denying our guilt and we recognize our sin. We quit denying our guilt and recognizing our sin. We recognize that we're broken. That there's something in us, no matter how hard we try, as, as much as we want to be good and as much as we want to live rightly, that there's just something that doesn't click. That no matter how hard I want to not lose my temper, that there's something that triggers inside of me that I, I cannot not lose my temper. But do I deny the fact that I have issues there? Or do I deny the fact, these are examples, by the way, I'm not only looking at me. 
Do I, do I not deny the fact that there's other things that are drawing my attention, that are drawing my worship? Do, do I just deny these things and act like nothing's going on? Or do I recognize that, yes, indeed, I'm a sinner? And rather than denying my guilt, I admit my guilt. Many of us are wearing burdens and heavy things upon us that we're, we were never meant to carry. Jesus wanted to trade that yoke with us, that, that uh, being a, a yoke of, of ease. Jesus said, why don't you take my yoke upon yourself and, and give me that yoke of burden that you were never meant to carry, that heavy load. Secondly, we admit our guilt and we ask for forgiveness. We simply say, Father God, I cannot do this in my own strength. I was created for more than me being frustrated. I was created for more than living in sin. I was created for more than living for me. I was created for more than being bound by a perpetual cycle to where I'm constantly seeking things that are going to appease this longing inside of my heart, yet I have not found that. We admit that we're broken, and we ask God for forgiveness. And then we let go of our guilt. And we believe that God has forgiven us. We wrestle with the idea that nothing is free. But Jesus Christ has given us a free gift of, of, of salvation. Through the great price that he has paid on the cross. Abraham and his faithfulness was considered righteousness. He wasn't perfect. David was not perfect. Anybody that we can fathom and think that they are the best of the best, they were not perfect. They were broken, just like you and me. But they recognized that God was sovereign, that God was in control, that God had a mighty purpose, and they were willing to surrender their lives and to live in the purpose of what God had called them to. They were willing to live in the promise. Abraham lived in that promise. David lived in that promise. See, Jesus came. He was the, the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. He fulfilled the things that man could not fulfill. He paid the price for, for you and for me. And so when we talk about faith, it's trust. Faith is stepping out and simply agreeing with who God says that he is that we're internalizing those truths and we're living them out in our lives, that we're putting our trust in Him and we're hoping that we will see a day when He will depart from the heavens and when He will come back for His people. Those who call upon His name and He'll make all things new. That day is coming. And so this morning we give praise for a God who not only created us, not only did He animate us, but he loved us so much that he was unwilling to leave us in a place of sin. He gave us free gift of salvation. That's a gift that you and I, we, can receive simply by putting our faith and our trust in him. So this morning as the, as the band plays, I just want you to thank God. In this season of Thanksgiving, when we get to rally around family and friends, we get to have people that we don't maybe get to see through the course of the year. We get to have them with us over the course of the holidays. We thank God for them. But I want you to be like David in Psalm 32, and I want you to thank God for the blessedness that it is that we have forgiveness of our sins and those things are not held 
against us. You see, we turned a corner today, folks. Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we see in simple faith that we can be made right and we can be made one. And so that is worthy of giving all thanks and all praise to our God and King. So please take these moments. This is a time of prayer. This is a time of praise. This is a time of response. And so no matter where you are, I want you to, to pause and to pray. And then as the Spirit leads you and as you affirm the truths that we're singing, I want you to stand and I want you to, to praise with us. I want us to, to sing praises for who God is and thank Him for, for His goodness. But if this is a time of response where, where you feel God really tugging on your heart or, or you want to come to know more about who He is or maybe you've got questions and, and you're like, man, I, under, I understand that I need to lay this down, but I don't know how, this is the time for you to respond. And even if you're not comfortable doing that, I invite you to simply come after we're done. Come and talk to Him. No matter what it is, we give thanks to God for you and we give thanks to God for God. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord, and we're grateful that you have blessed us in this time, in this moment, to learn from our forefathers what faithfulness truly looks like. It doesn't mean being perfect. It means simply surrendering to your will. And so, Lord, in this opportunity, help us to lift up our hearts and, and thank you that our sins are not counted against us. Lord, I pray that you would meet with every person in this room, that you would speak to us individually and corporately, Lord. God, that as we are wrestling with life and uh, maybe meaning or purpose or just wrestling with the week, we just pray that we could surrender those things this morning and that you would meet us here and be glorified. And so, Father, no matter what the response may be, we pray that we can lift all these things up in praise and that you would receive the glory. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.